Well, good morning. My name is Ben, and I'm so glad that you're here. If you're our guest today, we're especially glad that you're here. And let me catch you up, because if you are a guest, sometimes you walk into a new place or a new environment, and you don't know all that's going on. Well, we have been very busy around here. There's a lot going on at once. So we've been bringing two churches together into one unified church focused to reach this community. And man, that's going incredibly, incredibly well. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to have an opportunity for all the people who make this church happen, all the volunteers, the people who give, the people who carry this burden with us in prayer. You're all invited to a party in the park where we're going to get together and uh, bring those two teams together around some food. Doesn't that always work? I mean, you know you're a church when they have food events. And we're going to do that together. We're going to have a good time. And if you're not yet on the team helping making it happen, you're welcome to be with us and come to that. You'll find out more information about that at the end of our service. The other thing we've been doing is we've been collecting money for Haiti and India and for our ministries right here at home. And here's the quick update about that. About $30,000 raised and 100 different family units representing a solid one-third to maybe a little bit more of our church have participated in making that happen. And those are really, really great numbers in light of everything else that's going on and orphans and pastors in Haiti and India and right here in the ministry at home. That money is going to make a massive difference. But here's the third thing we've been doing if you're our guest to catch you up in the middle of a conversation. We've been having some tough conversations right from the pages of God's Word, the Bible. We've been calling this message series Hard Candy, where we've been taking our time to unwrap some of the harder things that Jesus said. And we've been slowly sucking on those truths in hopes that we don't get choked, (laughs) don't ruin our dental work, you know, by biting down too hard, but instead savor that sweetness over a long period of time. And today, I'm going to take you to a place in the Bible that was shocking when Jesus spoke these words. It's found in your Bible in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your scriptures, you can go there. If you didn't bring one, when we get there, they'll be on the side screens. Matthew chapter 5 says this. It says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans or people who don't even believe in God do that. And then he says this sentence, Be perfect, therefore, as your Father or your Heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 is where we're going to park for a minute. Now, those words that we just read, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, come at the end of a lot of interesting things Jesus said. If you're familiar with your Bible at all, maybe you've heard of the Sermon on the Mount. It's considered the greatest summation of Jesus' teaching. And it lasts about three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus gives a long sermon, much longer than the ones I give, I promise you. Much, much longer. Don't chuckle too hard. I know what that means, all right? Um, He gives a long sermon, and he says some stuff in there that was surprising. See, the context in which Jesus was speaking was an interesting religious context. Most of Jesus' crowd were Jewish people who had a common heritage, a very homogenous group of people with a similar set of 
customs and language and a similar set of beliefs. Their worldview is kind of monofocused. They shared a heritage that re- reaches back into what we call our Old Testament, where there was a point when Moses, one of the great patriarchs of this culture, that Jesus was speaking to delivered a set of laws. We call them the Ten Commandments. And God set out what his people would do, how he wanted them to behave, these children of Israel. And the, the theologians of, of that day when Moses was writing, the people that were very interested, they took those laws and they tried to help people live them out. And they took what started off as a relatively small group of rules and regulations and expectations. And over the decades, they grew into over 600 rules and regulations. For instance, here's an example of how it kind of mutated and grew. There was the fourth commandment that says, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. You know, don't be, be careful in how you, you speak that name of God. And so in an attempt to do that one really, really well, over the years that mutated into don't even speak the name of God at all, perchance you would say it in vain. In fact, don't only not only speak it, don't write the name of God. And if you do, leave a letter out. And even today, Orthodox Jews, when they write the word God, it's G space D in an attempt to not come close to undermining that command that God gave years and years ago. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, there is a a universal religious culture to the people he's speaking to, and the expectations are very high. And there's a group of people who are identified as having met those expectations better than anybody else. In our Bible, they're called the scribes, that's the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees, who are students and studiers of the law. And they comprise part of that audience. And then there's all the common folk that don't have quite the grasp, don't quite live up like the Pharisees do. And Jesus is embracing all of that crowd and he's here to teach them something. And it's something I hope we can get today. Jesus came to teach that crowd and us today that our Heavenly Father is a whole lot less interested in those rules than he is in a few other things that we're going to discover. So Jesus starts teaching and he says words like this. You have heard it said, you have heard it said that you should not murder. And everybody in the crowd says, yeah, we know that. In fact, not only in Jesus' crowd, universally in humankind, throughout all of human history, there's a pretty well-known understanding that you don't kill people. Now, there's certain scenarios in which you can, but generally speaking, we don't kill our own. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder, everybody's like, yeah, we get that. But then Jesus keeps talking and he says, I tell you, that not only should you not kill people, which is what you've heard, I'm telling you that you shouldn't even be angry with your brother because if you're angry with your brother, you're going to be subject to the same kind of judgment that people who kill each other are subject to. And so everybody who was tracking with Jesus when he said, do not murder, now is leaning in and going, where's he going with this? So do not murder, yes. Don't be angry. All right, that seems like Jesus just raised the bar. In the culture in which Jesus was speaking to at that time, people were already heavy laden with all kinds of rules and regulations. It was very difficult. Every minute particle of life was regimented. And you might think that Jesus would walk into an environment like that and say, you've heard it said, don't murder. And then instead of raising the bar, you would expect perhaps Jesus to lower the bar. 
I mean, if he's coming and speaking to a culture that is somewhat captivated and held hostage to a set of rules and regulations, doesn't it seem like the Jesus we understand, at least, would reduce that tension that comes from an oppressive set of rules and regulations? But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, you've heard don't murder, baseline, everybody agrees to, but let me just raise the bar a little bit. Don't even be angry at your brother. And then he says, you've heard don't commit adultery. And everybody's like, yeah, of course not. Everybody understands if I'm married to a person over here, my body belongs in bed with that person and not in bed with anybody else, certainly. And here's what Jesus said then. All right, so so we've got a baseline established. And of course, when he's speaking to that crowd, a lot of people had broken that, that commandment, do not commit adultery, one of the original 10. A lot of people had already done that. And Jesus says to them, here's our baseline. Don't commit adultery. We all generally agree with that. That's not a good thing. So instead of lowering the bar, Jesus raises the bar and he says, but I tell you, if you, if you look lustfully upon another person, then you're in judgment to the same degree that one who has actually joined their body. If they're in your head, Jesus says, it's similar to if they're actually in your bed. Right? That was difficult to hear. And all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, rather than lowering the bar in a culture that is already oppressed with the rules, Jesus knew who he was talking to. He raises the bar and almost gets ridiculous. It feels, you know, I'm not being, you know, heretical here. It feels almost ridiculous that Jesus would keep raising the bar to levels that everybody in the room would say, of course I've been angry with my brother. Am I a murderer? Of course I've looked at another person with lust. Am I an adulterer? Of course I love my friends and I struggle to love my enemies. Does that mean I'm not a religious person? And then Jesus gives his capstone statement that we've already revealed and he says, just so we're clear, my expectation for you is for you to be perfect. Now, just so we can release the tension, let me tell you what that means in the Greek, because you're going to love this. When Jesus said, be perfect, in the Greek, here's what he meant. Be perfect. (laughs) That's what he meant. This was a hard saying back then. And it's a hard saying today. And when you're faced with Jesus giving a hard teaching, we have a few options available to us. There are a few options, and I'm not sure that the tension we might feel in this room today is any different than the tension that they may have felt back when Jesus originally said these words. Well, if the standard is perfection, I I can't reach it. It doesn't take me long doing a little bit of introspection, looking in the proverbial mirror. I know I'm not perfect, and just to level the playing field, and she's not perfect, and he's not perfect, and of course my spouse is imperfect, and I can tell you in the ways that, that, that he's not or she's not, and everybody was feeling that tension. The Sermon on the Mount, by the way, just a little side note, that people refer to, and they say, I'm not really sure about who Jesus was, and I don't know if I believe in the miracles, and that he raised from the dead, and that he's the way to the Father, and all that. I don't know about all that, but man, I love his teachings. Oh, I love the teachings of Jesus. Here's my understanding when somebody says that to me. Love the teachings of Jesus, but I don't really embrace all that he said he was. I go, I don't think you've read the teachings of Jesus. I just don't think you have. 
Because what you love is the pieces of it you've picked out. When you take Jesus' teachings seriously, in the Sermon on the Mount, his message is clear. There's really no debate. The expectation is to be perfect. And the truth is, that bothers me. I struggle with it. i got to do something with that to relax the tension. I, I feel the rubber band of my emotions around that being stretched. And that tension... So what did he mean? What do we do with that? Well, let, let, me, let me tell you what people do with that. There's only really a couple of approaches. And you'll find them in church. In fact, here in this room today, as we go through this, I don't want to overstate. If you've been around here for a while, you know that we don't do sensationalism around here. I'm not going for the jugular emotionally. There's nothing for me to gain in what we're talking about here. But I sincerely believe if you'll embrace what Jesus is trying to teach us, that for some of us, we'll walk out of here more free than we came in. And for some of us, we're going to have an understanding of God and God's heart for us that we haven't had. Some of you are literally going to walk out of here with chains that used to hold you back spiritually, being loosened, and you will be able to walk freely. Because when front, confronted with the idea that clearly the standards matter to Jesus, and clearly you and I don't measure up, there's only a handful of things we can do. And so here's what good-hearted people in Jesus' day and in our day decided they would do with these. These teachings of Jesus that demanded a standard where he raised the bar so high it was impossible to meet. They, number one, they try harder. They try harder. The idea is this, is if the standard was here for everybody, now I'm a Jesus follower, it's kind of up here. I've gone public with it, I'm a Christian. I've said I'm not going to do that anymore. I've raised the bar, and now I'm going to live up to that thing. I'm going to try very hard. And churches encourage this. I've encouraged you to try harder. In light of the fact that Jesus says we're to be perfect, a lot of us try harder to reach that standard. And when we hit a failure along the way, it really is devastating. When you set your mind and you said, I'm not going to do that thing anymore. I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm going to work on this opportunity in a stronger, more direct, more, more forceful way. And then life goes on and the thing you said you wouldn't do, you find yourself doing. The thing that you said you were going to run towards, you find yourself walking, limping, perhaps stopped. The tension that is created in that gap between what you said you were going to do to try harder, to reach the thing that you believe God put in front of you is incredibly difficult to manage internally. But man, people keep trying harder. In fact, trying harder, there's a lot of activity, teachings, books all around trying harder to live up to the things that Jesus has said was important for his followers. That's one way people try to manage the tension between where they really are and the perfection, the standard that we're called to. There's another basic attempt. It's kind of the other extreme. If one extreme is, I'm going to keep trying harder and eventually I'll get there, here's the other extreme. I can't do it. I know I can't. I never live up to it. 
I've tried maybe, or intuitively I know when I hear it, it's not me, or maybe I'm so far behind the standard now that I understand it, it would be ludicrous for me to even take a step, it would be wasted effort, and some people just discount themselves or the standard altogether. You find people doing all kinds of crazy things like, Jesus didn't really mean that, so they water down the message. He clearly couldn't have meant that, that's not possible. Or they say, it's not for me, it's for you, or for her, or for him, or for those religious people, perhaps the pastor. And rather than trying harder themselves, they relegate the standards that Jesus is teaching, summed up in the phrase, be perfect. They relegate them to not having any bearing or demand on their life whatsoever. They exempt themselves, or they water down the rules. Why would people do that? Because there is a real tension if you take Jesus' words seriously that you and I and the crowd he was talking to need to be perfect. We intuitively know the bar is too high. I can't jump that. Now, let me recapture one more time the environment in which Jesus originally speaking, is, is, is originally speaking. Those people were already feeling oppressed by the standards. They were already feeling overwhelmed by the expectations. Only a select few could even really understand all 600 and whatever expanded rules of the original few. Let alone the common person. And in that environment, you might expect Jesus to walk in and go, here, here, here's, here's my good news for you today, friends. Those rules don't matter anymore. But he didn't do it. I'm taking a lot of time to try to to recreate that tension. And I'm trying to honestly handle the scripture and say, we can't simply dismiss the scripture, water it down. You can't simply exempt yourself. And also to say that your trying harder methods probably won't get you there anyway. Because if you've tried harder for any length of time to deal with an addiction, a besetting sin, a recurring challenge, or a goal that is just eluding you, you know that your trying harder efforts matter, but they don't ever really get you there. Anybody else in the room ever tried harder and didn't get there all the way? I'm going to keep my anger in check. I'm going to deal with that addiction. I'm going to engage that situation. I'm not going to click there again. So what do we do? And this is, in the middle of that tension, the very place that Jesus is going to begin to speak the real good news. In case you missed it, the good news of church, the good news of the Bible, the good news of Jesus, we call it the gospel. It's amazing how many people go to church and miss the meaning of the gospel. But it is only the gospel that answers the tension, that relaxes the tension between Jesus' comments, be perfect, and the reality of our lives. It's only the gospel. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teasing out this tension. He keeps talking about the standards, and people are captivated. They're drawn in. They can relate. But at the same time, they feel the very tension that maybe you're feeling, that the rubber band is being stretched to some point of breakage, maybe. How much more do you want? How much more can I do? 
Well, let's be honest, I've tried and it doesn't work. Or I'm certainly doing better than they are. So the third option between simply trying harder or somehow making it not apply to you is to embrace the very reason Jesus came anyway, summarized in the content of the gospel. And so Jesus sends himself as the primary teacher of the gospel to proclaim a simple truth. That yes, perfection is the standard. You won't get there by yourself. And this is where it gets strange. This is where it doesn't make sense on a lot of levels, but it is the truth Jesus wants people to embrace. Yes, you're not perfect. And yes, you're called to perfection. And you cannot get there by yourself. So here's what we'll do. I'll give you my perfection. That's what Jesus offered. I'll give you my perfection. We'll trade. You give me your imperfection, and I'll give you my perfection. And he came to this earth to create an environment where people would know the heart of God, which wasn't the rules are so overbearing, I don't want anything to do with you. That's kind of where they were. The rules are so overbearing, I don't want anything to do with you. You can't reach it. Keep trying. Some kind of masochistic, sadistic heavenly father. Keep trying. I'm enjoying watching you grovel for me. Or I I just don't belong in that place. No. He sent Jesus to communicate. There is a standard that matters. You can't reach it. So bring me your imperfection, and I'll give you my perfection. And so Jesus becomes literally the substitute. Theologians have written about this. They call it the substitutionary substitute. He's the substitutionary atonement. That is, he makes it right. He substitutionarily atones for our imperfection with his perfection. That's why the gospel writers go to great lengths and say this, that in all Jesus said and did, there was no guile or evilness found in him. That in every word, action, thought, he lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he dies on a cross as a perfect sacrifice. And on the cross, there is a grand exchange. Our sinfulness gets nailed with Christ to the cross. And his perfection gets attributed to our lives. That's the gospel. And the gospel has huge implications for you and me. It means that we can be honest about the fact that we're not perfect. And I know that that phrase is easy to admit to. You're not perfect. Of course you're not. You know you're not. But you can even afford to, because of the perfection of Christ given to you, you can afford to drill down in the specific ways you're not perfect. I've never been in a room where anybody said to me, oh, no, really, I am perfect. But when you start to drill down with somebody in a counseling session about their own failures, they start playing with the imperfection that is specific to them. I'm better than I used to be. Sure, that's true. I'm not as bad as the other person. Confident, you can always find somebody worse than you. Confident. But that's not what Jesus has called us to. And when you embrace the gospel, that it is not your perfection, but it is his attributed to your life, it gives you freedom to embrace the fact that you don't reach that high standard. It gives you freedom to admit you couldn't do it, 
So the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who lives a few years after Jesus goes to great pains over and over and over again to explain what does this grand exchange mean? What does it mean for Jesus, the perfect one, to stand in our place as the imperfect ones? To have taken on all of our imperfection in himself and given us his grand perfection. What does it mean? I could go to some 20 different passages right now to explain to you what the Apostle Paul was trying to say, but my favorite one is found in the book of Ephesians in your New Testament. The book of Ephesians chapter 2. And I want us to just kind of walk through this a little bit and draw out some implications for us. Here's what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians. In the second division, that's why it's chapter 2, beginning with about verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins. Let's pause for just a moment. When the Bible writers were thinking about our perspective as the imperfect ones who are called to be perfect, here's the language they like to use to describe it. You and I were dead in our sinfulness. We were dead. We were powerless. That's one implication of dead. Even if we weren't fully powerless, all of our best efforts, all of our try harder could never really span the gap. You could try harder to the day you die. You won't reach perfection. You're never going to be good enough. At one point, Paul writes it this way, that my best efforts at trying harder are like filthy rags before God. They're the dirty dishwater rags left out that smell, that stink. That's the best I can offer God when I try to clean myself up. That we are dead in our ability. We are dead in our ability to be perfect, to live up to it. We were dead. And it was to dead people that Jesus came, gave his life. It wasn't to, and here's the thing that we struggle with in America, it wasn't to generally good people that compared to others, we pretty much have it going on. Yes, I have some faults. Yeah, my anger, No, as it relates to our ability to connect with the perfect heavenly father and a perfect son called Jesus, we are dead. And we have to be made into new life that nothing we bring on our own is going to do it. So we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And then he says, and so it is by grace that you have been saved. We had two big words, mercy and grace. And then verse 6, in dealing with the deadness, here's what it says. And God raised us up with Christ. Jesus who gave his life and was resurrected from the dead. We are raised up with him. We're raised up to Christ because we were dead. You have no ability in and of yourself. The best you offer God won't get you to God. Your trying harder efforts don't secure anything with you and God. And if you exempt yourself, you're not really exempted. So trying harder and exempting myself don't do anything. But the third option of the good news is, is the perfection of Christ gets given to this dead man. And I am raised up with him. And that's the gospel. I'm raised up to him. And I'm seated 
in the heavenly realms with Christ, that when God looks at me through the lenses of the reality of what he sees in the spiritual realm, I am no longer dead when I embrace the perfection of Christ and transfer my imperfection to him. I am raised up. And through God's spiritual lens, I am literally seated on a throne next to Jesus, the perfect one. Some great exchange has happened and somebody made a cosmic mistake evidently because me who was imperfect gets viewed as perfect by the person whose opinion matters more than anybody else. I've been raised into the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Now look at this. This gets kind of poetic and flowery, but it's almost as if Paul is overcome with the implications. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And in case you missed it, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, it's a gift from God. So all of our try-harder efforts, they fail. We exempt ourselves, but that's a false reality. At the end of the day, the greatest reality is the spiritual reality, and that is that you and I have an opportunity because of God's grace where he showed mercy to us to embrace by faith the perfection of Jesus in exchange for our imperfection. This is not simply a message, and here's where our point is today, four corners. It is not simply a message for those people who are not yet saved. Because let me tell you what I observe as a pastor. People who are on the front end of their relationship with Jesus embrace these passages wonderfully and they go, oh God, thank you for my second chance. And then, and then, they start trying harder to earn and live up to the very thing that was offered freely to them. Now there's a place for trying harder. We'll get to that. There's a spot for you and I to give effort to cooperate with God in the work he's trying to do with us where he grows us up and develops us absolutely but do you understand that the very gospel that brought you into a relationship with Jesus is the gospel that keeps you in a relationship with Jesus that you and I are free we are free we are not earning God's love favor or acceptance by anything we do now, this is a dangerous message in churches because some of you are here today because of some guilt and obligation to your heavenly father, and I kind of like that. Some of you give because of some guilt or obligation to the heavenly father. I hope you don't feel released. It's, it's, it's a lie. You don't do, and I don't do, and not only do I not do, I can't do anything to earn his favor pre-salvation and post-salvation. It is grace before and grace after. I freely come with my imperfection and he gives me his perfection before and every point of my imperfection after I come and he gives me his perfection. And the Apostle Paul had this crazy idea as the Holy Spirit moved on him that that understanding that it is God's grace freely given, that that understanding would free you and I to live in response to that kind of boundless, crazy love. 
That rather than the audience Jesus was speaking to that was compelled to live up to some standard and they were always confronted with the idea that they could not, that this lavish display of God's love would give us a different motivation. That we would lay down earning with God, but we would pick up a response of gratitude and love. That we would be free so that we don't pray to keep God happy. We don't go to church to do our spiritual work and some kind of math. I've had an interesting week, God, you and I know, but I'm going to go to church. and Now we lay all that aside and then we become free. It's this freedom that Jesus was pushing for when he raised the tension and said, you and I have to be perfect. He wanted all of us to ask the basic question, how is that possible? He wanted us to, to some degree, explore, at least mentally, the options. What could I really do to get there? And he wanted us to come up with a simple answer, nothing. And in our nothingness, it would drive us to a dependence upon our Heavenly Father. And he would keep us in a dependency on our Heavenly Father. As a pastor, it breaks my heart to see Christians who so freely receive grace on the front end exchange that freedom in God for a new set of shackles and obligations. See, the very gospel that you responded to on the front end is still at work. So Paul continues to write, by the way, in our two Ephesians passage, he says, it is not from ourselves, it's a gift from God. Then verse nine, it's not your works, it's not my works, so you can't boast about it. And then he gives us a context for understanding our efforts, he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So good works, our efforts matter, but they don't earn. They are a response. What God prepared in advance for us to do. I love what this verse of chapter 2, verse 10 implies. We are God's handiwork. That, that word, no joke here, in the Greek is poema. Handiwork, we're God's poema. We get our word poem from it. We're God's poem. And he is writing in our lives a beautiful poem. It's a piece of art. And he has prepared good works for us to do in response to the grace, not to earn the grace. In response to his love, not to earn the love. We trade our efforts at religion and instead we pick up a new reality. We pick up a focus on God that is completely different. Religion keeps saying, do, 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 do. But in Christ, we find that it's done. And in that, we can rest and take seriously his words when he says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the same Jesus that had just told the crowd, be perfect. Oh, there's crazy making unless you embrace the gospel. How can I rest when I have to be perfect? Oh, it's not my perfection. I receive it by grace. The life I live is now lived in Christ. I am dead to myself. And when you embrace this, 
you're free then to let Jesus develop you and you don't see your failures as ending the relationship. Yeah, they cause you pain. They cause you discord internally. You're disappointed, but then you get up because you realize God is very interested in your development. And this grace then frees you to embrace God developing you. When you embrace Christ's perfection and trade in your imperfection, it frees you then to embrace prayer as a conversation with God, not a contract you're trying to live out with him. God, I will. I mean, how many movies have you seen this? God, if you'll rescue me, I'll devote my life to you. Some contractual understanding. That somehow if I do the right things, then God will. When you focus on Christ's perfection. You and I then are free to dream about where God is taking us, this poem that he's writing. When we focus on Christ's perfections, we're free to admit our sins. We don't have to pretend in our small group to ourselves, to our spouse. We are free to admit our imperfections and then invite God right into the mess. Because we know his disposition towards us is one of mercy and grace. When we focus on the perfection of Christ, we're free to let God manage our lives and we follow him. We let go of the contract that says, God, I've been pretty good. And this thing has happened to me that's really upsetting. How could you do that to me? I've been pretty good. I mean, Bobby hasn't been good and Susie hasn't been good. and I haven't been good all the time, but I'm better than Bobby and Susie. So how could this happen to me? And don't think followers of Jesus don't have a contract with God. We do. Many of us. God, I've been doing the thing. I've been giving it effort. I mean, you and I both know I'm perfect, but you've seen my effort. Don't I get some credit? God, if I understand you at all, don't I get credit for effort? And we have this contractual understanding with God. And let me just pitch out to you the danger of not embracing the gospel and instead thinking it's up to you, trying harder, or relegating yourself as somehow distinct and separated from the standard. The challenge is, is if you have a contract with God that if you'll do your part, he'll do his part. The moment you're disappointed, you're angry at him. You're angry at him for not fulfilling his part. God, I, we stepped up. We're working on it. We're doing our best. There are a lot of followers of Jesus who are angry at God for not keeping promises that he never promised. Deep down, they thought if they would do the thing, he would come through. But he never promised that. And so their anger is built on a lie that says, really, here's the way it works with God. I try, I try, I try. And if I try, God will come through. He has already come through for you. And everything that matters. You are as saved now in your imperfection. If you've trusted Jesus with your life, then you will ever be. And yet, at the same time, God wants to write a poem of your life. He wants your life to be a work of art, but it isn't to earn it from Him. It's a response of love and gratitude that frees us then to pray to God as our Father who wants to hear us, not the guy we're working out the details of our contract with. This is the gospel that saves us. And it's the gospel that keeps us saved. My challenge to you is to think about this hard saying of Jesus. 
And don't water it down when he says, be perfect. My challenge is for you and I to be honest enough to realize we are never going to be perfect. So what are we going to do? Keep trying? Exempt ourselves in some way? Or embrace the gospel of Jesus? Oh, God. The obligations you put before me are, are overwhelming. I cannot do it. Here's how the Bible would say you would say that. God, I'm a sinner. I am broken. My best efforts don't get me there. And so, Lord, I want to receive what you're offering. Your perfection applied to my imperfect life. Your blood covering all of my sin, wiping away every stain. If you've not done that, today's the day. And if you have, and after you've done it, you've fallen back into some contractual arrangement with God, my challenge to you is to realize all your best efforts are going to be what the Apostle Paul said. They are going to be filthy rags before God. You can lay down the contract. God isn't angry at you. He's not waiting on you to get it right so he can finally bless you. He has already blessed you in all things through Christ. As far as God is concerned, you're already sitting on a throne next to Jesus. And he would love to write a poem of your life. And then you and I are then free to respond in grace, to the grace, in love and gratitude. We no longer do things to earn. We no longer do things to avoid God's displeasure. We no longer do things to make God obligate his contract. We do them in a response of love and grace. This, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it would be a sad thing for you and I who are believers in Jesus to not embrace the full impact of the gospel. That's why we have this church. So that people could lay down trying harder. They could lay down exempting themselves and they could say, I come to Jesus all of me covered by all of him. And there would be freedom in that. Do you need any freedom today? Do his words come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and overworked, overstretched. Come to me and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden light. Does that resonate? Does it pull on your heart? If so, you and I have an opportunity to run, to run once again to the gospel of Jesus and lay down everything else and pick up nothing but Jesus. Because Jesus plus nothing is everything. And Jesus plus anything is nothing. With that said, grab out your connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. I want to give you a chance today, if you haven't already, to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I've been talking about it the whole day. I want to give you a chance to lay down your effort, your imperfection, and receive him by acknowledging what the Bible says about you, that you're a sinner. So next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. I'd ask you to take that pen that was provided, check the box. And when the offering buckets come by at the end of our service, put it in there. But in a moment, I'm going to lead our congregation in a prayer. And give you a chance in your own words or to borrow mine and say, God, forgive me. I receive to the best of my understanding, the best way I know how, God, I receive the perfection you offer. 
but I can't bring it. And I'd ask you to take that card and put it in the offering bucket and we'll communicate with you this week. Let you know about how awesome it is to be in a relationship with the Heavenly Father that loves you, that sees you through the lenses of mercy and grace, that is already destined to write a poem in your life and how to cooperate with Him in that. Or next step B, if you check A, think about checking B. I'm going to get baptized. A couple weeks ago, we baptized several folks. We're going to do that again in just a couple weeks. And just say, I'm going to go public with my with my faith in Jesus. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Of course I'm not. And there are going to be people in the audience who know the ways I'm not perfect. But I am new in Christ and I'm raised to life with him. Now how about next step C? God, I've been operating on a contract with you and I pray you'd let the gospel explode in my life. I'm praying this prayer every morning. If you'll check the box, I'll send it to you in an email and we'll join together. God, I still go back to a contract that somehow it's on me, but I want the gospel to explode in my life, every crevice, every corner. Now, the next two steps relate to our life as a congregation. So if you'll check these, we'll just send you the information about it. It's the quickest way to get it out to you. First one says, I'm going to sign up for the party in the park. It's a gathering of people who make Four Corners happen. If you want to join a team that preaches the gospel to this community and you're not yet on a team, check it. Or you're on a team, you don't know about it. Check it and we will get you information on Monday and you can be a part of this. We can celebrate where God's taken this church. And then the last one is for those of us that have the, uh, the mantle of leadership on us in our homes or in our businesses. If you're interested in signing up for LeaderCast, check this box and I'll send you a discount code because we want everybody in our church to be able to come. Now, you th- well, how spiritual is that? Well, the Bible calls leaders to lead with all diligence. It's part of the poetry God wants to write in your life. And so this opportunity gives us a chance to grow together in our leadership. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Jesus. God, I, my heart is pulled by your words, and I am tempted to discount them when you say to me, be perfect. And so, God, in that tension, I run to you. I run to you, knowing that when I get there, there is grace and mercy for me. And so I join with my brothers and sisters in this room. I join for those people who are seeking and wondering. I join with those who, have, who are investigating today. And I just say thank you for Jesus, for being our sacrifice, for being our perfection. God, I pray that we would lay down the contract we would pick up your grace instead. I declare with those that are saying, God, I'm a sinner. Wash me clean. Exchange my imperfection for your perfection. I declare with them that today is a new day, that they are raised to life with Christ, and they will never be the same. We give this to you. We pray it in the strong and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen.